Okay, well, thanks for coming, um, and uh, I'm really glad to be back. Uh, I've been back uh, for my reunions, uh, but this is actually the first time that I've been here to, to talk to the law school, so this is uh, fun for me. Uh, I took uh, Professor Nackbar's uh, Regulation to Media class uh, a long time ago. Uh, I think it was 13 years ago, so uh, what, if I get things wrong today, I probably learned them wrong from him, uh, or, or from Tim Wu, who taught my internet law class. Uh, and was actually working, I didn't realize this at the time, but was working on the paper in which he coined the term net neutrality. Uh, so I, I, I like to say that I've been dealing with this fight now for uh, about 14 years. Uh, and uh, so at this point, I, just, I, can, I don't really need notes. I can just kind of uh, wing it. But, uh, but I'm glad that we're going to have a back and forth today. Uh, before we get started, I'm just curious, uh, who here is involved in the tech journal? Anyone? Okay, sorry to hear that. Uh, is, is anyone really interested in career in a career in law and technology? Anyone? A few people? Okay. Um, well, we were just chatting about this. I, I hope you realize that there's more to, to technology law than IP. Um, there's a whole field of telecom and, uh, and other regulatory agencies, and that's what, what uh, we're going to talk about today. So I hope that this is actually uh, helpful for you, not just in understanding this debate, but also in giving you some context as to what technology law is all about and uh, what you can do in private practice or uh, careers in government or uh, the nonprofit world, uh, which is what I've been doing for uh, almost a decade. So, um, so let me start with a little historical note. We're going to divide this into two parts. So one will be about the policy debate about net neutrality, and then we'll get into the legal history. But, um, but I can't avoid, in the policy debate, giving you a bit of history. So, so you'll, you'll see a bit of uh, repetition as we, as we go through this, but I, I hope you'll appreciate why we're doing this. So I uh, practiced and then uh, went to the think tank world in 2008. And the big debate at that time was about Comcast BitTorrent. Do you all remember that uh, Comcast was... Are you familiar with BitTorrent? It's this... Just kidding. Go ahead. (laughs) Right. So Comcast, as you may recall, uh, was... Probably you were in high school or or less than that at the time. Less? Okay. Uh, Was accused of throttling BitTorrent traffic on its network. Uh, and this led in 2008 for the FCC to take an enforcement action against them for violating uh, the FCC's 2005 Open Internet Policy Statement. Uh, now, if you know anything about administrative law, you might know that policy statements are not supposed to be enforceable, um, and yet that didn't stop the FCC chairman from trying to do that. Uh, that case wound up uh, at the D.C. Circuit. The D.C. Circuit said in 2010 that the FCC had no authority to issue to, to uh, enforce that policy statement, and that if they wanted to do that, they had to issue rules, which is what they did. In 2010, they issued an open internet order. Uh, that internet order was uh, based on, on a, an obscure provision of the Communications Act, as we'll discuss in the second portion. Uh, in 2012, in the Verizon decision, uh, the D.C. Circuit uh, uh, struck down uh, those rules uh, for the most part, but they upheld uh, the transparency rule and the FCC's authority to regulate in this area. And so then that set in motion uh, another rulemaking uh, where the uh, FCC ultimately, uh, I'm sorry, that decision came out in 2014. The oral arguments on it were in 2010, excuse me. Uh, So in in 2014, that decision came out at the beginning of the year. Uh, That set in motion uh, the FCC trying to figure out what it was going to do. Uh, And then in the middle of the year, as you may know, John Oliver got involved, called the FCC chairman a dingo, which he is. 
in my opinion. Uh, and, uh, and then very famously, the president got involved in November after the uh, losses that he suffered in the midterm elections. And the FCC went and issued in uh, the beginning of 2015 a second open Internet order that had a, a stronger basis of authority and took a more aggressive approach to the rules. So that's, that's basically the story that you would have heard about this debate big picture. Uh, but I'd like to start, because like, again, I said we're going to talk about policy first. I'd like to start with the road not taken, um, not just because it's interesting as a, as a legal matter, but because it actually helps to uh, reveal what I think is the real policy debate. So I, I was at the airport a few weeks ago, and I ran into John Leibowitz, who was the chairman of the Federal Trade Commission, uh, uh, which I have called the Federal Technology Commission, because, in fact, it is in many ways more important than the FCC in regulating new technology. So he was the first FTC chairman in the Obama administration uh, for the first term, essentially. And, and he, we got into a conversation about the um, things the FCC has been doing recently and, and, um, and what they were going to do next. And he said, well, you know, just by the way, uh, back when I was first on the commission, before I became chairman, I was the senior Democrat, uh, when the whole Comcast BitTorrent thing started, uh, I went and talked to the Republican chairman of the agency, Debbie Majoris, and, and we agreed that this made sense for the FTC to take on. Comcast was uh, alleged to be deceiving its customers. They had said that they would not treat traffic this way, and yet they did. And so we were going to bring an enforcement action against them. We were ready to do that. Um, and then Kevin Martin, who was the FCC chairman, um, said, no, this was, uh, this was his responsibility, and the FCC was going to handle this issue. And that was the fork in the road that we went down. So I start here because, to me, this isn't just a question of, of regulatory authority and, and, and administrative law or which statute you prefer, but about approach. And in essence, uh, the, the debate here has never been um, about net neutrality for or against, or at least it shouldn't have been. Um, the, the coining of that term, Tim, Tim Wu's creation, uh, in many ways has obscured what I think is the real debate, which is everyone would acknowledge that there are potential problems here. Nobody wants their internet service provider blocking traffic that they want to access. Uh, but that, that's really never been the debate, either in the policy world or among broadband companies. The, at least the major broadband companies have all agreed that they didn't want to be in the business of blocking lawful content. The question's always been um, about harder aspects of this. So in 2010, uh, the FCC rule had three parts. There was the transparency part. That's never been controversial. There was uh, no blocking part. Uh, never been controversial. Uh, and then there was a, th a, a rule about non-discrimination. And that gets a little more tricky because what, do you, what exactly that means has never been entirely clear. Uh, in the 2010 uh, order, uh, the FCC wrote a rule that on its face, if you just look at the, at the rule at the very end of the several hundred page document, the rule appears to be what we would call a, a rule of reason. It says no, um, no unreasonable discrimination. But if you read the text of the order, uh, the order says, or the D.C. Circuit later interpreted it to say, uh, that the FCC would um, consider it, quote, uh, very unlikely that any deal for prioritization by which one company paid another to have its traffic prioritized, the FCC said it was very unlikely that that would ever satisfy the unreasonable discrimination standard. And so the D.C. Circuit, when they looked at this later, uh, in the Verizon decision, uh, they said, well, that to us um, essentially looks sort of like the old joke about strict scrutiny, uh, strict in theory, fatal in fact. 
Essentially, that's what they said. They said this, this appears to be essentially a per se ban on any kind of prioritization deal. And that's why they struck it down, because of the particulars of the authority the SEC was using. So that, we'll get to that in the legal debate. But to me, that um, opens the door to a discussion about the, the gray area of what it means to deal with discrimination and um, what the FCC has later come up with in its second open internet order, which is the whole concept of, of throttling. Uh, and, and my view on this is basically the following, that we would have been better off uh, if the Federal Trade Commission had started to deal with this area. They would have built a common law, uh, as they have in a few cases since. They have actually gone after uh, companies that uh, throttled consumers' uh, data plans uh, without um, telling them or in ways that the FCC, FTC considered unfair, which is the second source of the FTC's authority. That, to me, would have been a better way to deal with this. And we might have evolved per se rules about some things, like blocking uh, or transparency. Or we might have had Congress uh, legislate in this area and uh, freeze some of those things in statute uh, and write a a rule of reason for other things. And, in fact, that's essentially what uh, very nearly happened in 2006. There was a proposed update to the Communications Act that actually passed the House that uh, died in the Senate, in part over this issue, over debates about this, in part because uh, both sides thought they might win the next election, and that, that opportunity for a legislative deal was passed. And then in 2010, the uh, FCC chairman uh, again tried to negotiate a legislative deal, uh, and, uh, and at that point, it was Republicans who thought, well, maybe they would win the next election, and so they didn't come to the table. And so it's, it's been, in a sense, uh, ships passing in the night. Um, most recently, Republicans on the Hill offered a legislative compromise that would have put in place essentially the 2010 order as the rules read, which would have been uh, a, a per se, not, rather than a per se rule, something of a rule of reason regarding uh, non-discrimination. But by that point, the politics of this, in, in no small part thanks to John Oliver, had moved on, and so that was no longer considered a reasonable compromise. So that's where we are today. Um, Congress, uh, there are bills in Congress, if the FCC should lose in the ongoing litigation about this, uh, that would lock into place the, the core of what people have always recognized as being concerns over net neutrality. Uh, they would um, remove the problematic sources of the FCC's legal authority that it has invoked that we'll debate in the second half of this. Uh, but the hard question always uh, comes down to, well, the policy questions on the margins, and this is where I'll, I'll wrap up. Um, you, it's, one, it's all very well and good to say, well, uh, consumers should have the right to access content and companies should be transparent. But when you actually get into the details of that, the details really matter. So I'll give you just a few quick examples, and then I'll let uh, Professor Nackbar respond. Uh, the transparency rule, um, in principle, has never been controversial. In practice, though, uh, you can imagine writing a rule that uh, becomes not just a you-must-disclose-how-you-manage-your-network rule, um, but rather becomes um, essentially a sort of, sort of like a tariff in the old days where we did regulatory tariffs where you have to disclose everything about your business and every, ch- every price you charge anybody in, in, in the ecosystem. People have pushed for all of those things to be shoehorned into the concept of transparency. That's one example of debates on the margins. The bigger one is the debate over paid prioritization. That's what got the FCC into this, this um, difficult place they were in in 2014, where the chairman originally wanted to use the same source of authority that was upheld by the D.C. Circuit um, 
And, and, and the re requirement for doing that, the D.C. Circuit made very clear, was that the rule that they came up with must be one that allows uh, for, for reasonable uh, commercial negotiation, which would have required there being some kind of rule of reason. It couldn't have been a strict ban on, on uh, paid prioritization. But it might, for example, have said something like, well, if a company is being paid uh, by uh, or it is prioritizing the traffic of its affiliate, well, maybe then there is a rebuttable presumption that that is anti-consumer, right? Those are the kinds of things the FCC could have done in revising that rule. Uh, they didn't do any of that. They instead went for a strict per se rule that really um, has no distinction as to what kind of prioritization uh, we're talking about, what throttling really means, and most notably uh, has a very strongly worded no, no throttling standard. Uh, that means that, for example, because of Again, the difference between the text of the rule and what's in the order itself. If you look at, and if you're really interested in this, I would encourage you to go read it for yourselves. Paragraph 122 of the order is very ambiguous. It, it starts out talking about how the whole point of the rules is to defend user choice. And that's always been the rhetoric of this. That was Tim Wu's framing in 2002. That was what the FCC invoked in 2005. Um, and so you would think that uh, as long as users are in control, that the FCC would, would step back and let people decide for themselves. And yet the second half of that paragraph uh, then seems to say, uh, but if a, a, a service provider, a broadband company, should throttle an, or, or block an entire class of applications, well, that would be a violation of the rule. And it's not clear because of the way the paragraph is worded, but it appears to say, or you could read it to say, that it doesn't matter whether the user is, in, is involved in choosing. And this is not an academic debate because this now has, has created the debate, the, the next tier of this debate, the next phase of this, over things like zero rating plans. So if, if, you, if any of you are T-Mobile subscribers, uh, you have, for example, the option to use Binge On, which allows you to watch an unlimited amount of video. You can turn it off at any time, but as long as it's on, T-Mobile throttles the video, so or, or to use the FCC's term, throttles it. To use a technical term, they, a more technical term, they downgrade it or optimize it so that it's, it's delivered at a quality that is uh, appropriate for your screen. Some apps already do that. Not all of them do. But it allows you to, um, to get essentially free data uh, while having that traffic throttled. You can turn it off at any time. But if you don't turn it off, uh, you are having your traffic throttled. Now, others have complained, like the Electronic Frontier Foundation, that this is a violation of that uh, no throttling rule citing paragraph 122 uh, because they take a very absolutist view of this. And in my view, this is just an example of uh, something where we could have had a, a reasonable agreement. The FCC's order is so complicated that there is now room for people to interpret it multiple ways. And we don't know how the FCC will do so. But we, we do know that this has already had a chilling effect on um, companies in the marketplace that actually want to offer those kinds of services. Uh, one of our interveners, where Tech Freedom is an intervener in the lawsuit against the FCC, uh, they are a variety of entrepreneurs and investors in uh, new startups, most of them focused on uh, voice over Internet uh, services, uh, and they all need some kind of priority to deliver their service. And one of them in particular uh, is developing a, a, or wants to develop a, a service that would essentially unbundle your wireless data plan. So instead of buying a, a monthly bundle of, of data, you essentially pick and choose what you want. And, um, and his argument is we should let consumers choose. And that is likely to be cheaper than the all-you-can-eat or all-you-can-eat up to a certain data limit plans than people have today. 
but he's afraid that, that for reasons like I just mentioned about um, interpretation of this paragraph, that that, that would be interpreted, interpreted as a violation of the FCC's order, and that he shouldn't have to go on bended knee to seek permission from the FCC. And the last example I would give you is uh, interconnection. So when we started this whole debate, net neutrality was understood to be a debate about what happened inside your network. Um, did you, as a broadband provider, throttle or block traffic in your network? That debate has now become about essentially everything that broadband providers do and how they interface with the rest of the Internet. And when you get uh, traffic over your connection, if, you, if it's arriving to you slowly, it's not necessarily because of anything that's happening on the broadband provider's network. It may be because of interconnection between, the, say, the Comcast network and the um, company that delivers traffic to the Comcast network. Those are companies like Level 3. There's essentially pipeline companies of the Internet. You've probably never heard of them because you don't interact with them directly as a consumer. Well, to make a very long story short, in that proceeding back in 2014, uh, Netflix in particular was able to get the chairman to move from saying, at the time that they put out the notice of proposed rulemaking, he said that interconnection was a different issue, not something the FCC was going to address at this time. They would have to look at it later. He went from that to then ultimately including interconnection in this strong net neutrality, where essentially now the FCC polices those deals, and companies like Netflix have argued that having to pay anything for interconnection uh, is a violation of net neutrality, even if they end up paying less to Comcast for delivery of their traffic than they previously had to pay to some third party. And that's essentially what happened, where uh, Netflix very cynically manipulated this debate, knowing that there were um, monsters that John Oliver was able to rally to file comments at the FCC who didn't care about such distinctions uh, and who, who could be persuaded to believe that Netflix was being ripped off in the deal that Netflix struck with Comcast in early 2014 to save money on delivering traffic to consumers. So that's essentially where we are today. It's a, a brief overview of the, the policy debate. And my point is simply that there are um, areas where we could agree. There are other areas where there are uh, a range of opinions. And again and again, the FCC has chosen not just the most radical position at, at what seemed like the most radical position at the time, but pushed the envelope far beyond where things stood before to the point where even legislative compromise now uh, is, is very difficult, if not impossible, to achieve. Um, <clears throat> so those are great comments. Uh, I was going to start by disclaiming that, that even though I taught Barron, I am not going to be held responsible for his errors. Having not made any, I now claim credit for everything that Barron said. <laughs> Uh, so thanks very much to Baron for coming down and for the society uh, for having us. Um, I have a couple of bits of bad news. Uh, judging by the number of familiar faces in the audience, the first one is that there'll be nothing about antitrust or contracts in my, com my comments today. Uh, the second is that I'm not sure we're really going to have a debate um, because there are so many points on which I agree. Uh, so first of all, I agree that nobody... Uh, is really that interested in sort of classic views of throttling or discrimination. Um, and for that, actually, I would cite the prehistory of net neutrality, what we would have been talking about probably back 14 years ago, uh, the open access debates, the thing that really spawned this uh, uh, the regulator from a regulatory perspective in the first place, back when there was a debate about whether or not the person that you bought your Internet access from whether they would also, um, whether the person who sold you the connection to the Internet could keep other people from being the Internet service provider. And that seems like kind of a goofy debate today, but it was the big debate uh, a long time ago. The 
the carriers won that in uh, in the series of orders uh, um, culminating with Brand X, and then the carriers, having gotten the ability to discriminate against service providers, didn't. Right? Turned out nobody wanted that. That was basically America Online. Nobody wanted America Online. People wanted the internet, and so there isn't much incentive, or there hasn't historically been much incentive to do it. Um, and then the second point of agreement is. I agree that the concept of network neutrality is not terribly helpful, right? It's about as determinative as the concept of equality in the Constitution. Um, and, you know, there been a, there's been one or two debates about the meaning of the word equal in the Equal Protection Clause, and the same thing's true with the concept of neutrality. It doesn't tell you what's neutral. It, uh, in order to be able to evaluate what's, what a neutral position is, you need to have some baseline understanding about uh, uh, what something is supposed to do in order to figure out whether or not your attitude towards it is is neutral, and, and that basically um, uh, begs the question. It really assumes the question away. And the third point that I agree on is that John Oliver is a much better comedian than he is a policymaker. Right? He is absolutely hysterical, um, but he's absolutely hysterical. So, um, uh, so I would, I guess, what I would say is I would push us in a slightly different direction. Um, so, because I can agree with a lot of what Barron has to say, um, and, and, but I think that, that, we're, that we're missing a lot of the point here, which is that both sides of this debate would like to focus upon this as though it's a question about economics and the way that, um, and, and which system leads to sort of the most optimal outcomes. And, and I don't think that's right. I think it's essentially a political debate about the nature of the kinds of controls that either the government or private entities are going to have uh, over uh, communications networks. So uh, proponents of network neutrality point to potential market failures like uh, blocking that might be self-serving to a carrier, especially if they are integrated with a content provider like Comcast is with NBC Universal. Um, and opponents point to both the possibility of getting the wrong regulatory solution and the absence of actual market failures, which I just pointed to a second ago. Um, uh, and I'm generally sympathetic to opponents on the economic arguments and maybe on some of the institutional ones as well. So in the thought experiment that, that I would suggest to you is, so with regard to Binge On, when Binge On came out, the chair of the FCC at first sounded pretty happy about it. You know, his initial comments on Ben John were, wow, this might be interesting or whatever. And then as time went by, he became more ambivalent about it. And I think his comments would have been even less uh, positive if Ben John had come from AT&T or um, Verizon, which is to say that one of the reasons why he seemed to be interested in Ben John was because of a view that he had not about neutrality, but about the nature of T-Mobile as a disruptor in uh, especially wireless communications markets, and saw a lot of this in other contexts, specifically with regard to the FCC's position on the AT&T T-Mobile merger, that they viewed T-Mobile as occupying a position in the market that polices what, they, what the FCC considers to be the dominant players in, in uh, Verizon and AT&T. And so... You know, but that doesn't have much to do with neutrality, right? It has to do with what his sort of overall view of what communications markets are supposed to look like, and I think that you see uh, a lot of that here. So um, to the extent that the FCC is approaching it, I think it's approaching it like kind of a general policymaker as opposed to focused on any one particular aspect of the policy. 
Um, uh, and so, and, and, and maybe a little bit more directly, I think it actually is a mistake to think of the FCC as being pro-consumer. The FCC is not really pro-consumer. That's not their regulatory model. That's never been their regulatory model. So, you know, a long time ago, the FCC would, uh, was essentially trying to force us to eat our vegetables by making sure that there was, you know, a particular amount of balance in our news uh, or the availability of uh, political um, uh, or um, uh, <coughs> political dialogue, right? They had these, uh, they had these um, uh, uh, equal time rules, and those have have largely gone by the wayside, but the FCC is not about consumers. That's not their thing, and they never ha- and, it, and like I say, it never has been. Um, they are much, much more concerned about providers than they are about consumers, about information providers. And one of the reasons why this is so confusing and one of the reasons why it's so interesting in this context is that the line between providers and consumers has become very thin. Lots of consumers are providers, and it didn't used to be that way. It used to be there was a big line between providers like television networks and newspapers, right, and consumers. And nowadays, right, every consumer is also a provider. And the FCC, I think, is keenly aware of that problem. And so when you look at things like the merger conditions that they placed on the Comcast uh, NBC Universal merger and certainly the whole shape of the open Internet order, any one of the series of them, um, you see a lot of concern for providers, and I think that's why, right, that, that's why at some level to criticize the FCC for being anti-consumer with regard to its concerns about throttling is to miss the point, right? I, you know, we all like to use the rhetoric of pro-consumer, but in fact the FCC is really quite a bit more concerned about providers, and I think you need to tackle their arguments on that level. Right? Otherwise, we look at it from what is rhetorically an appealing perspective, but substantively just isn't really the point at some level that they're making. And that really the way to think about this, if you want an easy way to think about this, is to not compare Internet regulation to telephone regulation, which I think is, is, has historically been um, the comparison that people like to draw, but to cable regulation. Right, the FCC is sort of this two-headed monster. Well, five-headed monster. I don't know. So uh, uh, I have a friend who's an FCC uh, member now. So I have to be really careful because he is a wonderful, wonderful guy. Uh, that narrows it down. Yeah. Right. Um, so uh, he's a classmate of mine. So that might be that narrows it down a bit too, and it demonstrates how much of an underachiever I've been compared to him. <laughs> um, but the FCC, right, regulates, has historically regulated both telephones and um, media, right, broadcast and uh, uh, by association cable. And I think, it's, I think it's Internet regulation, right? The Internet does everything. So how many of you have, I asked my, my antitrust class this kind of, right, how many of you have cable television, right? Okay, so if I had asked that question... You know, a few years ago, everybody basically would have said yes, right? And then the point would have been people don't watch broadcast anymore, right? That, you know, 90, uh, 80, was it 85 or 87 percent of people get their broadcast television from cable. But those people are all old people who watch broadcast television, right? Now people are not buying cable anymore. And the reason why is because they have the Internet instead. The Internet is, is a huge substitute for cable television and for other forms of 
what more closely tracks on what the FCC thinks about with regard to media than what the FCC thinks about with regard to telecommunications or classic telephone service. And so I think uh, in order to really understand what the FCC is doing, you need to approach it from that perspective. And then there's a whole other history that you can draw upon for, for understanding. Maybe not agreement, right? What the FCC has done in that area has been problematic too. The FCC's original response to cable was to detect that there was this great alternative to broadcast that had to be killed, uh, really, at any, at any cost to prevent it from harming broadcast. And uh, um, that's not to say that, that what they're doing is right, but that uh, we have to be careful about which, which analogies we're drawing and which we're not. Well, I see I'm going to have to pivot significantly further to the um, libertarian right to, to, to outflank uh, uh, right, exactly. what, what was supposed to be my, my debating partner. Um, so let, 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 so we're going to talk now about the law and the big picture of the FCC. And this is, this is where I pull out the, the flamethrower, um, because I think that the first debate is, is one that really has been largely unnecessary and, and could be resolved. Um, now, this is where I tell you about why we should abolish the FCC. Uh, so let me, let me start. I'll give you two quotes. So first is, is from our uh, brief in the Open Internet Order case. Uh, where we started by saying net neutrality is a red herring. The issue before the court is the FCC's claim of unprecedented power to regulate the Internet without congressional authorization. And the alternative to the FCC's unprecedented, unauthorized, and unchecked regulatory action is not a regulatory vacuum. The alternative, as Commissioner Pai observed, is continued enforcement of generally applicable laws by general purpose regulators, such as the FTC's enforcement of consumer protection and antitrust laws passed by Congress pursuant to the Constitution's checks and balances. So that's my view. And then I'll give you another view, and the source will perhaps surprise you. Uh, if history is our guide, these new technologies are at risk, and, every, and with them, everything they make possible. With so much in its reach, the FCC has become the target of enormous campaigns for influence. Its commissioners are meant to be expert and independent, but they've never really been expert, and they're now openly embracing the political role they play. Commissioners issue press releases touting their own personal policies, and lobbyists spend years getting close to members of this junior varsity Congress. Now, that was 2008, and you might think that that was some, um, you know, FedSoc member, but that was Larry Lessig, the, the godfather of the, the digital left, the um, op open um, uh, copyright commons, creative commons movement. Uh, in other words, there used to be a, a pretty broad agreement among thoughtful people uh, that the FCC uh, was at best operating with an outdated statute and at worst hopelessly subject to uh, regulatory capture. Uh, if anything, in my view, the last eight years have, have proved that the FCC uh, cannot be fixed and it needs to be uh, destroyed and the, the earth beneath it, beneath it salted so that it never grows back. Right? And let me, let, me, let me explain why I, I, I get there, because we're now I've given you a little bit of a flavor of that. But so let, let's start with, um, so it was 2004 that Michael Powell, who was Bush's first FCC chairman, gave a speech about the four freedoms. And the four freedoms were freedom to, freedoms to, to get lawful content and connect devices of your choice. And everybody applauded him. Nobody disagreed. And that was in large part, it was, a, it, was a, uh, it was vocalizing a lot of the things that Tim was talking about. Unfortunately, uh, when in approving a, uh, a merger at the time, uh, there was political pressure to do something more than that. Uh, the FCC issued a, an open internet policy statement, which I already alluded to. The new chairman took over, Kevin Martin, 
uh, and he very quickly started to use that uh, for regulatory purposes. It wasn't just the uh, enforcement action against Comcast. There was another merger, another cable merger, uh, where the FCC imposed regulatory conditions from the Open Internet Policy Statement because uh, if, if you don't know this, you know every once you get into merger review by administrative agencies, everything you ever learned about antitrust law is useless because the standard involved is not is not antitrust law. It's not you know uh, harm to consumers or anything like that. It's it's the public interest, which means whatever the chairman can get two other commissioners to agree upon, and that includes all sorts of conditions that the agency may or may not have legal authority to require. Right, so that that started us down this road, uh, and and now Kevin Martin um, was uh, the either the worst chairman of my lifetime or tied for the worst chairman of my lifetime, in the sense that he was completely unprincipled, utterly ruthless, and willing to do absolutely anything uh, that suited his particular political agenda. So he didn't care about free market principles or what the smart um, regulatory alternative was. What he cared about is that he was the decider. And his agency was going to make decisions because that was it was ultimately about him. And that's that's what started us on this. And then Julius Janikowski, the Democrat that took over under Obama, was a genuinely nice guy who really liked to, to negotiate compromise and tried. And, and the order reflected a certain degree of compromise. And he tried to negotiate on the Hill and, and so on and so forth. And now, now we have a chairman who is basically um, Kevin Martin, but um, less genial, if that's possible, and more of an autocrat. And so behind that sort of alternation of personalities, what you've seen has been a a single constant force, which is the institution itself has a certain logic to it. Just as bacteria don't have intelligence, but they they evolve over time. They they evolve to a a certain end, right? I'm I'm not comparing the agency to (laughs) bacteria. You can't take an antibiotic and make it go away. (laughs) But what I'm saying is that institutions evolve, right? And, And one of the points of the Federalist Society, and, and one of the principles on which, you know, that unite us, is, whether we're libertarians or conservatives, is that institutional structure really matters. And if you create an institution that, that has a special purpose to regulate a particular industry and whose standard is the public interest and then has all sorts of weird legal hoops that it has to jump through depending on which bucket things you're in, that is a recipe for disaster. And that is essentially what has happened here where first the FCC uh, claimed in the, in the Comcast order that they had ancillary jurisdiction. Um, in other words, that they had invented this doctrine in the 1960s in order to try to regulate cable when cable did not fall under their statutory authority. And they said, well, Congress didn't actually say we should regulate this, but it's ancillary to what we, what we must do, and we should be able to do that. And the court involved these weird standards in a series of cases called Midwest Video where they essentially recognized the agency's ability to do that. But finally, in, in 2010, um, the, the court said, well, this makes us uncomfortable. We, 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 you should, you should, it has to be ancillary to something, so, and you have to issue rules. And so in 2010, the FCC not only issued rules instead of just doing case-by-case enforcement, they also said, aha, we found something that, that we could use as a basis for authority. And that was Section 706, which is a provision of the 1996 Act that says that the FCC shall promote broadband deployment. They shall do annual studies. And if they find that, that the uh, state of broadband deployment is negative, they shall take immediate action to promote deploy- investment and deployment. Now, the FCC had always understood that to be a command to use its other sources of authority in ways that promoted broadband deployment, which in my view is the only reasonable way you can read that 
provision for all sorts of statutory reasons as well as for just the way that Congress writes statutes. And yet in 2010, the FCC said, nope, that's a grant of authority. We get to do whatever we want. Uh, And bizarrely, the court upheld that in the uh, Verizon decision. Uh, and they said, oh, well, we wouldn't be worried about this uh, if, if there weren't limiting principles. But there are limits here. I mean, they can only regulate communications. So that's only one-seventh of the U.S. economy. Uh, it has to be something that crosses the wires, right? And there are limits to that. And it's true that there have been cases like the broadcast flag case where the FCC tried to require the installation of copyright filtering technology, except it was on the device after the, the TV had received the signal, and the court said, well, that's, that's outside the scope of communications because it's no longer in transit. So it's true that there are some limits to that, right? So you can regulate what your smart washing machine does while it's receiving the signal, but not once it's received it, right? So that was the first limit that they cited. And the second thing they said was, well, but it, it also has to promote broadband deployment. I mean, they've got to make some factual finding, to which I say bullshit, because what the fi- finding the FCC made in 2010 it's not, I mean, it wouldn't, it, it's laughable. It was their assertion that, we'll see, we're going to regulate broadband companies, and that's going to promote investment because there's this virtual cycle, virtuous cycle by which if the ecosystem is healthy, then people want to use broadband more, and so there'll be more investment and use, and, that's, and it's only going to happen if we, the government, come in and ensure that these, these basic open Internet principles are there because if the broadband companies were left to their own devices, even though it would be good for them if they, if they just, you know, kept their hands off the net... They wouldn't do it, so we need to intervene, and that'll be good for them in the long term. It's ridiculous. Uh, and the FCC's never done any kind of economic study. Uh, in the most recent uh, open Internet proceeding, they essentially continued that same analysis to uh, actually three former chief economists from the FCC, including Democrats from the first uh, Obama administration, uh, lampooned this, saying that the FCC had become an economics-free zone. Now, this doesn't mean anything. Right, but the FCC claims that's in a blank check to do whatever they want. So that is the source of authority that the uh, D.C. Circuit upheld as the basis for the open Internet order, the first open Internet order. Now, they invited in 2014, remember that's when the decision came out, they invited the FCC to try again. They said you could use 706, but when you do, you do there are, there's, there's one other limit, which is um, you cannot treat non-common carriers as common carriers. Because if you do that, you are essentially reclassifying them without uh, officially doing so. And there had been, in the, in the two and a half years that it took the D.C. Circuit to actually issue that opinion, and in fact, after the initial briefs were filed, there was another major decision that came down called Selco, where uh, the same judge that ended up writing the Verizon decision, Judge Tatel, uh, who just, by the way, is blind and somehow manages to be an amazing appellate circuit judge, which is quite an achievement if you ever think you have too much reading to do in law school. People manage to, to do it. So Judge Shadle wrote this decision in Selco where he, he, for the first time, articulated what, what is common carriage and where is the line between it. And he basically said, there, in fact, there's a gray zone, but what, 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 what ultimately matters is, is there room for reason, commercially reasonable negotiation? So that was the condition that the D.C. Circuit gave the FCC at the beginning of 2014. And it was on that basis that the chairman of the FCC, Tom Wheeler, made his initial proposal, which was to use Section 706 to allow uh, a new version of the 2010 rules, which would allow room for reasonable, commercially reasonable negotiation, which meant, to get back to where we started, essentially having a rule of reason 
with regard to paid prioritization agreements. And that's where the digital left went absolutely bananas and where uh, John Oliver, who, of course, is an expert on common carriage law, got involved and said, well, if that was going to happen, consumers wouldn't be protected. We need a strict rule. So that's ultimately, this is all background to say that that's why the chairman was forced, between that and the pressure that Netflix brought to bear about interconnection, the chairman was forced to abandon that initial proposal and instead ended up saying, well, we will use 706, but we're also going to uh, invoke the, what had always been considered the nuclear option in telecom law, which was to reclassify broadband providers as common carriers. And so it's on that basis that the FCC ultimately issued its final open Internet order uh, saying that they could completely ban paid prioritization. Now, a few quick things. First of all, if you know anything about, about utilities law uh, or common carriage law, you know that, that even common carriage law is all about reasonableness. You're, you're supposed to charge just and reasonable rates. Uh, and so it remains an open question legally whether you can ban an entire category of transaction and say that there is no price at which this will be allowed or rather that the price always has to be zero. Uh, in other words, that, that all traffic has to be delivered to everyone all the time. No matter that, that, that there are some categories of traffic like email, where you don't care if it gets there a millisecond later. And there are other categories of traffic, like, like voice chatting or, or, or um, video conferencing or, or health services or gaming, where it really does matter. And you might, uh, your character might end up dying on screen before you because of a few milliseconds of delay. And you probably, as a consumer, you want to pay for, uh, for that to be prioritized. And if you can't pay for it, the market's not going to exist and you're not going to get it. Well, the FCC didn't care about that. They didn't do an economic analysis. They just banned it outright because the policy debate ultimately became a debate about legal authority. And the groups on the um, digital left that had been salivating over this idea that had, been, had started in the fight over open access in the 90s, that had, uh, whose vision of competition for telephony was to have government-mandated resale of telephone service to create artificial competitive local exchange carriers, which were called CLEX. That was their vision for how internet competition would work. And we would have this structural separation where you'd have, you know, the dumb pipes companies, and then you'd have a, a, an infinite number of resellers. And in Europe, it's, if you go to, if you ask your European friends how many broadband providers they have, they may say, oh, we have, you know, eight different companies we can choose from. In, most, in almost every country, they're reselling the same service. It's one pipe to the home. It's all resold. Well, that's the sort of thing you could do under Title II. That, that's that's what the traditional Title II sort of system was about. It was designed for the AT&T monopoly telephone network. Open access, by which you would create artificial resellers, was one manifestation of that. But there are lots of other ways that gets manifested, which is why uh, the broadband providers were so concerned about Title II regulation, what it could open the door to. So to make a long story short, the FCC said, well, don't worry. We're not going to uh, impose all of Title II. We're going to forbear from all of the things you're worried about. So we're not going to do unbundling or this or that. We're going to open this up. Um, uh, we're going to limit it, rather, to only the core provisions of Title II so we can write these, these strong rules and we'll go forward from there. Well, those core provisions of Title II, Sections 201, 202, and a few other provisions, those, if you went back and looked at the Interstate Commerce Act of 1887, that's what's in there. That, that's the core of common carriage. All the other stuff that the FCC forbore from, those are just things that, that, the, that Congress added on in 1934 when they were adapting the Interstate Commerce Act for uh, the communications industry. You can do everything you want under the core provisions of just and reasonableness of rates 
and of, of consumer practices. And that's what we're now seeing. The FCC has now opened the door to, um, to all of those, those provisions being used under uh, – those core provisions being used for any number of regulatory purposes – and they also, importantly, when they when they invoked for their their forbearance powers, uh, they made forbearance easy in the future because they didn't have any real basis for saying that that the markets were reasonably competitive. Because at the one hand, they were saying, "Well, the market won't work without regulation. Broadband providers aren't competitive. We have to regulate under net neutrality." And then on the other hand, they came around and said, "Well, but uh, but it's sufficiently competitive under the statute. There are three conditions for our forbearance power." Sufficiently uh, competitive for us to come in and and uh, and forbear from all of the provisions that we don't think should apply. Well, to me, what that really means is the FCC is now watered down forbearance. So even if you're a Democrat and you think the FCC should be very very active, what that did was to open the door for a future deregulatory agency to come in and gut not only the open internet order or net neutrality regulations, but anything else in the act. I don't see why the FCC couldn't forbear. Uh, quite easily going forward because they have claimed deference under Fox, the Supreme Court decisions regarding what agencies have to do to change their minds, uh, and said, well, we, as long as we have some basis, doesn't matter how flimsy it is, we can change our minds. So, so that means, to my mind, that the FCC is now effectively rewriting the Communications Act. They have invented a new version of Title II that it looks nothing like the old Title II, that is adapted to their purposes, and that they can rewrite it any time. And so that, to me, starts to look a lot like what the EPA was held to have done in the Supreme Court's decision uh, in 2014 in Utility Air Regulatory Group versus EPA, where the EPA was in a somewhat similar situation of having a rigid statute and trying to apply it to the difficult issue of greenhouse gases and knowing that if they treated every home and car in America as a, uh, the same way that they treated factories, that that would bring the economy to a halt. And so instead, they rewrote clear statutory limits about emissions and, and so on to come up with a new version of the Clean Air Act. Well, the, the, the Supreme Court said in a 6-3 decision written by Justice Scalia that they would not stand on the dock and wave farewell as the agency embarked on its multi-year voyage of discovery. And that that's not what administrative agencies were supposed to do. They were supposed to enforce statutes as written. And if they didn't work... It should go to Congress. And then the fact that the agency had to go to such lengths uh, should have been indicative to the agency that they had taken an interpretive wrong turn. So our case, a little different, because the agency does have forbearance authority, which the EPA did not. But to us, the same basic pattern, fact pattern applies, where the agency saw that the, what it was doing was radically different from what Congress had intended, and took great lengths to tailor the statute. They even used the same terms, talking about tailoring and modernizing the statute. The fact that they have a forbearance power uh, doesn't change uh, how agencies should look at this. So this is where I would, would wrap up by saying that, to me, what's really at stake here in the open Internet case is not just net neutrality, because that, that, again, would get resolved by statute or in some other form. It's, it's not just the FCC's power. It's how much... How much um, uh, deference are we going to give to agencies? How broad uh, a course can they chart without direction from Congress? And if the FCC can get away with this and claim that there's that this is just Chevron at work and it's an ambiguous term in the statute and, and there's nothing to see here, don't worry about it, um, then Chevron is, is not what it was originally intended to be, which is a, a tool for democratic control, um, but rather it's, it's a blank check for the administrative state to do whatever it wants. And th- those are the questions that we're raising 
in the ongoing litigation about this. We lost at the three-judge panel. Uh, I will say that the dissent was stinging. Uh, I think it was 79 pages. And it went into great detail about the arbitrariness of the FCC's uh, interpretation of the rules. And it raised many of the concerns uh, that we have raised. This uh, issue is now before the D.C. Circuit on Bonk. Um, they took the um, somewhat unusual step of asking the parties to re- rebrief the case, which indicates that they actually have some interest in this and that they're, they're not simply going to dismiss this. And now we simply have to wait and see what happens. Uh, my bet, if you're watching the case closely, is that they're dragging their, feets, uh, their feet because um, they know that the court is deadlocked and, of course, Chief, Chief Judge Garland is the nominee to the court. He's recused himself from what happens at the D.C. Circuit. But this could take quite some time. If there are dissents being written, uh, there may be uh, decisions from the majority explaining why the court might deny um, uh, rehearing, if that's what they're going to do. And those could take as long to be written as the decision did in this case, which is to say it could be more than a year. But when this case finally goes up to the court, whatever the configuration of the court is, I think um, even Democrats like Justice Breyer, who have long been very concerned about the overreach of administrative agencies through Chevron, and, and who, who sided with Justice Scalia in the UR case, you're going to start to have to ask themselves some very serious questions about whether major questions like this, uh, that not only are major in the scope of what we're talking about, about the Internet, but also in, in the, the breadth of authority the agency has claimed, the, the degree to which the agency can rewrite uh, the, the, effectively the, the statute, um, whether that's really what the kind of deference that is supposed to be granted to agencies. And I would hope that the court would actually give effect to decisions like Brown and Williamson, where they recognize that there are some limits on, on Chevron, and they would essentially wall off some, um, some boundary uh, in which the court is going to defer to agencies. And beyond that, say they're actually going to exercise, exercise some degree of scrutiny. So I'm detecting a note of negativity with regard to your approach to the FCC. Flamethrower. Um, uh, so... And look, and to the extent that you do, right, I mean, your war is with Chevron versus the digital left, right? I mean, you suggest that it's a, that this is not just about net neutrality, but I don't think that the set of arguments is about network neutrality at all. Um, uh, so now, actually, I'm going to tell a lie. I'm going to put the lie to what I said earlier, which is that, uh, actually, I'm going to talk about both antitrust and contract. Um, so... Um, because the FCC, you know, in general, their opposition to the mergers is not very well based in antitrust law. And there's, there's, there's a growing divide now between how the DOJ approaches antitrust and how the FCC approaches antitrust. Um, but more importantly, the way merger conditions work, right, is that they are agreed to by the parties to the merger. So the FCC says, hey, we're going to block the merger because we don't think it's in the public interest. The merger conditions are not imposed upon the party. They are imposed upon the party as a condition, right, of the FCC approving the merger, which is to say the parties agree to them. You know, there's mutual assent as to... Now, consideration is a different question. We'll, get, we'll talk about that tomorrow in contracts. But, uh, but, right, the parties agree to this, which is to say there are more players in this than the FCC. The FCC is not singularly responsible for the rules that we wind up with. And to some extent, the regulatory hash that we have as a result of the litigation is partly a consequence of carriers' opposition to really any mandatory control over them, right? So some of the carriers have basically fought anything, even stuff that they were willing to do voluntarily, they would fight as a matter of FCC control because they didn't want the precedent. So uh, 
you know, I don't think the FCC is acting alone in this. I think the carriers have their part to play, too. So, and that, and that really goes to my, my almost final point, which is, look, the FCC is a boogeyman here. Um, common carriage is a thing. And common carriage has been a thing for centuries. People are going to demand common carriage, some kind of common carriage regulation in this space. The question is, what form is it going to take, right? doesn't matter whether you're talking about bridges or ferries or railroads or wireline communication monopolies or whatever. We've historically had common carriage here, and even Barron is totally down with the idea of common carriage regulation if it looks like common law common carriage regulation, right? So the, it's not necessarily the institution hasn't created this problem. The problem has resulted in the institution, and then the institution has taken the old concept and adapted it to a new problem, right, this overlap between media and telecommunications. Um, you know, whether they've done so well, I think, is a good question. It clearly is a mess, I think, because of all who are involved. But in order to decide that the FCC is bad at this, right, it's going to happen. The question is a comparative one. How bad are they? So, right, I, w- I would ask, right, not whether Tom Wheeler would be good at this. I'd ask whether Judge Green would be good at this. So when Judge Green broke up AT&T, right, in the AT&T antitrust litigation, right, as part of a consent decree, Judge Green basically took over telecommunications regulation, right, until, uh, uh, until it was revised through statute, right, as part of the antitrust consent decree. He managed it. And the question is, do you really want, do you think that a federal judge, right, or a bunch of atomistic federal judges are going to do a better job of running this policy than the FCC is? And, and I don't have to... I'm not going to make that claim, right? I don't have to prove that that's right or that's wrong. All I'm going to suggest is that that's really the question, because I think that if you think that there isn't going to be regulation in this space, that's 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 probably that's probably not going to happen. Uh, Shall we break for food? Is it here yet? No. Okay. What? I was I was trying to hit that just right for the food. (laughs) Do you want to Do you want to continue? Because I I can continue. I'm good. I think we should take I think we should take questions. So let me just say one thing before we take questions, which is so so you might be wondering, well, who cares about this debate over common carriage? What difference does it make? Um, There are countries. Well, everybody cares about common carriage. No good. Okay. Well. Remember, I, I don't I don't teach at a law school, so uh, I'm, I'm, I'm always pleased when people are interested in things like common carriage and administrative law. Um, so, the, the United States has taken a different path from most countries in the development of the uh, of its communications landscape, uh, and it doesn't just start in the last 20 years. It goes back to the development of cable. Cable is is um, is the only. Um, um, telecommunications technology that was born free. In other words, it was it was developed by uh, people starting in mountain communities who couldn't get uh, television signals, who went and deployed um, cable to wire their towns. And it was not regulated by the FCC. And we had, over the development of decades, eventually the FCC claimed authority, and eventually in 1984 there was a Cable Act. But in the, in the outset, it was born free as an alternative medium. The United States is one of very very few countries um, where it can be said that almost everybody has two pipes to the home, in addition to wireless choices. Most developed countries have just one because there was a monopoly network that developed one pipe and it was considered to be wasteful to build a second. And so broadband competition in those countries 
um, is it, it, that's how it works. You get a reseller to just resell that service. Maybe sometimes you get someone who's willing to deploy another pipe to the home, or you have wireless or satellite. The, the, the key thing to understand here in the debate that happened, um, and we, we left out one important detail, which is I talked about reclassifying broadband companies as, uh, bro- as um, cable, uh, excuse me, as uh, Title II services. And President Akbar mentioned the Brand X decision. Well, so what we left out there is that in the um, realm of 2002 to 2005, the FCC had to deal with the regulatory status, first of cable, and then of, of telephone companies. And they initially decided in 2002 that cable uh, was not a Title II. Uh, cable who provide internet service. Excuse me, cable modem. Right, right? Cable as distinct modems. from cable video service. Right. Cable video service is covered by a specific title of the, of the uh, Communications Act. But the, the status of cable modem service had never been clear, right? So, so the short view is cable modem was never subject to Title II, was never treated as a common carrier until 2015. Telephone service is more complicated because the, the, the telephone network was the original Title II uh, FCC-regulated common carrier. And so in the 1990s, when telephone companies, you know, first there was dial-up and then there was the DSL service that went straight to your home, well, DSL uh, you know, initially was treated as a Title II service. And in 2005, building on the 2002 decision saying cable modem was not a Title II service. In 2005, the FCC said the same thing for DSL. So they, they, they in a sense, um, lowered, I don't, I don't like to say deregulated, because there was still regulatory tr- uh, protection over those services, but, but they, they, they removed that scrutiny. And that's what, in a sense, started these battles. That's why many groups on the other side have been pushing for, for 10 years to get common carrier treatment of all broadband providers. Now, you have another debate about whether that's good or bad. I will just say, before turning to questions, that to me, that was essential in promoting the uh, thriving environment for investment in this country, where b- private investment has driven broadband deployment. And you may think that it's not good enough. You may want better, faster service. But imagine what it would have been like if there hadn't been over $1.4 trillion of private investment in broadband networks since 1996. And in particular, if, uh, if companies like Verizon had not in 2006, in, in part because of the 2005 order saying that they were not subject to Title II, and because of earlier orders saying they weren't going to be subject to unbundling mandates, that was when they decided to start upgrading their pipes to the home, that copper pair, to do fiber, which is why in the Northeast you now have two really strong, fast options. And around the rest of the country, you've seen in areas where there just isn't the density to do fiber to the home, you've seen telephone companies pour money into upgrading from their old DSL networks into, into uh, what's called VDSL2, which basically means putting fiber very close to your home, and then getting 25 to 75 megabit speeds, which is many, many times what you use for, com- for Netflix, which is like four megabits. So, so that, to me, has been a success story that's been driven by private investment, in part because the FCC has taken a hands-off approach. And now, who knows? The data is, we don't have a lot of data yet. Some data would appear to suggest that there has been a reduction in investment. We'll see. So, questions? Should we start with policy questions before getting into legal nitty-gritty? Do you want to call on someone? <laughs> Who sent in a pass? <laughs> All right. I can't do that to them. I really. 
at Boulder, at Silicon Flatirons, the Boulder uh, Law School, they do that at every event. There always has to be a student to ask the first question at any at Oh, they events. prearrange it? Uh, no, 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 no. The, the rule is so it's called the Phil Weiser rule, and the first question always goes to a student, and if a student doesn't volunteer, Phil calls on a student. Anyway, you had a question. Yeah. Why do you think the FTC would be less heavy-handed in this space? So, for a few reasons. So, one, to start with, it is a general-purpose regulator dealing with laws of general applicability. It is less likely to be captured. It is less driven by comments. So just, just as a pure political matter, the, the big difference between the agencies is the FTC doesn't take public comments on things. I mean, it might have a workshop, and, and, and they may solicit experts to comment on things like that. But they operate – they're a, a law enforcement agency, and that's what they do. They, they, they issue um, a consent decree, usually. Uh, they're supposed to litigate more. But – but they don't bring in the three-ring circus. They're not steered in the same way that the FCC is, where when the FCC does something, they open a docket, and then all the people whose um, purpose, whose livelihoods, is to uh, control what the FCC does go in and, and file the most hysterical comments they can and increasingly get armies of people behind them to, uh, to support their position. So when you go look at an FCC docket, if you ever do this, the most important thing you do is there's a box that says exclude short comments. Always click that box because if you don't, you get, depending on the docket, thousands, sometimes millions in the open Internet docket of essentially carbon copy comments that, you know, it might as well be some crazy person at home cutting up a magazine and gluing them to the page to write a ransom note, right? With, you know, the, the kidnapper font, which is you can get on your computer, Right. It, it, that agency is no longer, to the extent that it ever was, it's no longer driven by anything remotely resembling same policymaking. Its, its underlying standard is not a standard at all. The public in, what is the public interest? It, that's a purely political standard. The FTC, at least in, in, in principle, has very sound standards. Antitrust law which is a well-developed body of law, which you may disagree with or like or not like, but at least we have some adult supervision. The courts intervene, and they'd say, you know, you got that one wrong. And sometimes the law changes, like on um, resale price maintenance. When I was taking antitrust law here, resale price maintenance was per se illegal. And when I took Tom Barnett's antitrust law class, he then became the um, deputy assistant attorney general for antitrust later, and he assigned us to do uh, – we had this moot court – and he assigned me to be the Department of Justice because he just he wanted me to you know stand by the existing law. And he gave me the resale price maintenance claim. I, I did the libertarian thing, and I said the DOJ is going to take a, you know change position, which is actually what happened, right? I mean, eventually, the government didn't do it, but the courts did, and economics changed the law, right? That doesn't happen at the FCC. It does happen at the FTC under antitrust law, and at least to some degree in, in unfairness and competition. So, uh, so. Not to be too negative, but you're, I think he's just form shopping. So, uh, and the reason why is because the reason why the FTC acts the way that it acts is because it's a law enforcement agency. So they act primarily right through adjudications or that, that lead to consent decrees. They don't do rulemaking. There's no reason why they couldn't do rulemaking, right? And if they did, they would start looking more like the FCC, right? I mean, when you start doing this, you attract whatever you attract. Now, you could call it capture, or you could call it you know, citizen participation. I mean, I think it's an interesting claim, right, that we should be really concerned about the FCC because they're reading, receiving a lot of comments. 
that should be a good thing, right? And if it's not a good thing, then we got to wonder why. So, um, I mean, you know, now if you, it depends on what your theory of the FCC is and whether the comments are well considered or whatever. People are going to file a lot of maybe not perfectly considered short comments on November 8th, and that seems to matter to us. So I'm not sure why it shouldn't matter to the FCC. Um, but, um, but more to the point also, uh, the FTC is hardly immune to this from this. So you say that the FTC is bound to antitrust law. The FTC no longer thinks it is, right? The FTC has just taken the policy position that, that the unfair methods of competition covered by Section 5 are no longer limited in the competition context to the antitrust laws, that they can, they have not yet, but they can go beyond them. And I don't think there's any reason to think that any particular institution is going to be more or less immune. It may take them some time, like it took the FCC some time, and so, you know, I mean, to some extent, right, I'm, I'm going to counter Barron's argument about the FTC versus the FTC by taking the more extremely libertarian position, right? Like, I get that, but institutions are institutions, and it's not clear that the administrative state is any different than any other kind of institution in this regard, and certainly not between the two of them. But Just for the record, though, the unfair methods of competition policy statement that the FTC put out um, – is generally understood as being a significant constraint upon the agency's discretion because there were people who'd wanted unfair methods of competition to be even broader than that. So, look, I, we, we could have another talk about my criticism of the FTC, <laughs> which, which in a nutshell is, is um, mend it, don't end it. Right, I think it actually... Not, so no salt on the earth for the Right, FTC. right, right. No, that's right, yeah. <laughs> All right. It's actually a fixable agency, and the reason it's fixable is it's not just the institutional structure. The legal standards are better. But there's one other important thing we haven't talked about here, and you alluded to this at one point. The deception power the FTC has is not only useful in cases like Comcast. It's also a wonderful vehicle by which we can delegate these difficult issues about where, how do you draw a line over this or privacy or... Or, the, or drones or any number of other things, these are things that in some sense even a libertarian would say have to be regulated, but the question is how, and I'm very skeptical about regulation from the, from the government, from the top down. I would much prefer to see these sorts of things dealt with through a multi-stakeholder process. And there is actually such a process that was developed in, in the early stages that could have been a forum by which to adjudicate a sort of a, a part alternative dispute resolution for net neutrality, part coming up with, with uh, or, or revising, more importantly, codes of conduct or, or even binding industry standards over time. It was called uh, BTAG, the Broadband, Broadband Internet Technical Advisory Group. You could imagine a scenario where the FTC, by virtue of its deception power, becomes the, the, the enforcer of those sorts of systems so that the government isn't actually writing rules, but it holds companies to the, the rules that they have agreed upon in multi-stakeholder processes with, with civil society groups and so on. And if you look back at the Obama administration in 100 years, th this is the thing that they'll be remembered for, is that the, is the starting down this road of multi-stakeholder processes. Now, that, it raises a different set of concerns about the government steering those processes and essentially bypassing the APA and getting things they couldn't get just as they get through merger conditions. So That would never of, happen. I wouldn't worry about that. Uh, yeah, none of these things is perfect, but, but at least it's a, it's a somewhat better model. Also, they have an entire Bureau of Economics, whereas the FCC has some that are ignored. They just completely left out of decision-making. Other questions? It seems like the problem is there's a lot of demand for internet services and not a lot of supply. I guess the question is who controls and regulates access to the scarce resource? Um, so I, I guess then, is it just like an antitrust problem? Um, and whether, how much trust we have in a free market? 
Is that a right way of looking at this anti-neutrality thing? So they're all antitrust problems, it turns out. Uh, so, I mean, I think that you raise a really interesting point, right? And, and one I think that is, that is that's critical to consider, which is that all of these arguments about the kinds of discrimination that you should be able to, to engage in or not, or the reasonableness of them, or whether something is throttling or prioritization or whatever, are all completely technologically contingent, right? They all assume scarcity. And so, and then you see, of course, right, um, um, right, deployment then is leapfrogged by demand, which is then leapfrogged by deployment, right? So, and, and you see it in different ways. So it's not always that things get faster. So, this, you know, wireless was not always a viable competitor to wireline internet access. And, and it's getting to be more and more, and in a few years, I think it, it probably will be. And so, um, I, I do think that it's careful, that it's careful, that it's dangerous for either regulators or policy advocates to hang their arguments on one particular relationship between demand and supply, or between the, the, um, the availability of spectrum or the availability of broadband access or whatever, and particular uses, because they wind up changing over time. And to the extent that the FCC's approach, which is more rule-centric, or they're trying to make it more rule-centric, is tied to particular technologies, that strikes me as problematic. Um, but it also, provide certainty with regard to those technologies, right? That's always a problem in this space. There were two proposals in the open internet rulemaking that would have um, gotten at what we're discussing now. One was to exempt gigabit or fiber to the home networks from the rules for exactly this reason. Uh, and the other was to say, well, if there's, if there's competition, some degree of competition in the broadband marketplace, then the rules shouldn't apply. Which is actually, that's, and that's where forbearance usually works. So forbearance was designed... In, even in the Title II concept, to be applied in cases where there was reasonable competition in the market, that's kind of where they came, that's where they originally came up with the rules. So. Right, and the FCC rejected both ideas, saying, without um, hesitation, this has nothing to do with competition, and it doesn't essentially it doesn't matter what the marketplace looks like. We need these these rules. Now, um, so that that's just one to demonstrate that they're not particularly interested in in this level of of detail. But, but it's just to respond to your question, as a technological matter, uh, it, it is true that there are parts of America, essentially low-density and low-income parts, where I think it, where you can fairly say that um, demand, in some sense, if, if, if you set aside willingness to pay, that, that, and even in rural areas, perhaps even that, you can say perhaps that that outstrips supply. If, you have, if your only option is satellite or a traditional DSL connection, you're going to have a hard time getting access to things that people want and enjoy. And you may not have mobile deployment in low-density uh, areas, right? And driving around Virginia, central Virginia, that, that's true, right? But on the average, it, I, I think it's definitely not true that demand is outstripped supply. And it, on the average, um, supply is always, in my opinion, uh, exceeded uh, available demand. And it's in part because of this, this leapfrogging back and forth between telephone companies and um, cable companies and, and their continual upgrades to new standards. And I'll just give you, just, just really quickly, you, you've all, I'm sure, heard of Google Fiber uh, and, and gigabit service. Well, all of these conversations in D.C. now revolve around gig, the, the, the technological fetish of gigabit service, which has become a lot like, like supersonic speed. It's like we're in the 1960s and the Concorde hasn't been built yet, but we have this idea that when the Concorde happens... The future is just going to be amazing. It's just things are going to be totally different. 
Well, it turns out that, you know, I, I, my mother once took the Concorde because it was on a business flight and someone was willing to pay $13,000 for a ticket. But you probably, probably none of us even know anybody who ever took it. It didn't really change things that much. It wasn't what people were actually concerned about. What they really wanted was cheaper, more affordable travel, which dealt with all sorts of, of other iterative innovations upon the existing framework for, for technology. And the same could be said for broadband, where if, you have, um, if you're in Austin or Kansas City and you have gigabit to the home service, you are still streaming Netflix at 3.6 megabytes per second. Even though you have a thousand megabytes or megabits per second, you could be using, right? And, and there are a lot of reasons for that. One is that there are no commercially available 4K streaming services on the market today. And even if there were, those are still only going to stream at something like 20 to 50 megabits per second, which is still less than is available in the vast majority now of markets from cable or even the telephone companies, which have upgraded to VDSL. So this idea... That, that, which drives a lot of these conversations, that somehow you know, the market has failed and, and broadband companies just aren't deploying enough, and so we need to have government-run networks, which is another talk that I could give or we discussion we could have, to, to me is, is just really silly. And if, what we should be having a discussion about, instead of this debate, which has frankly sucked up all the oxygen in the room for a decade, is what can government policymakers do to help make broadband deployment easier. We had a very good national broadband plan that was done in 2009-2010 with um, stimulus money that identified that a lot of these barriers are local governments. Some of it's regulatory and fees and red tape. Some of it's the fact that they don't think very carefully about how they do infrastructure policy. They don't put in conduits in roads when they dig them up so that a broadband provider could come in later and very cheaply thread fiber through. If they did that, if they started thinking about how can we make it easy to put 5G, next generation, gigabit-capable wireless antennas onto street lamps in cities. You could very well have new forms of competition emerge, where Google Fiber now seems to be saying, we're not going to do any more fiber-to-the-home deployment. Instead, we're going to do fiber in cities, and then we're going to use wireless for the, for the very expensive last 300 feet. So anyway, that, but for the most part, it has nothing to do with net neutrality, except it is true that there's some connection about scarcity. And then the, the last point I would say is that even on gigabit networks, like Verizon's network is a fiber-to-the-home network. They didn't build it as a gigabit network. And the reason is you can get multi-gigabits through fiber. Just as you can get multi-gigabit through cable or even uh, copper, the limitations are distance. and fiber, you, you can get that speed through a lot longer distance, whereas with cable and telephone, you have their shorter distances. So it's a question of, of, of where is the equipment, and then how much do you invest in the equipment? And that's the real cost. And so people who imagine that, well, if you just build infinitely fast networks, there won't be any need for prioritization. That's, that's insane. That, that, that is, that's saying you should pour money into putting out a, equipment that nobody really has any demand for in order so that the, the, the very small percentage of digital elites in cities who are primarily white, um, affluent users who are doing things like streaming video games and, and video conferencing and watching 4Ks on their huge televisions. Are we really going to drive our, our national policy to subsidize those users and pass those costs on to everyone else at the same time that we recognize that affordability is a problem? Right? I mean, that, that, that's essentially what people are saying when they say if, if, if they just built infinitely fast networks, there would be no need for prioritization.